Unraveling the Enigma of Reason Written by Scott Young, February 2019 My favorite book of last year was Dan Sperbay and Hugo Mercier's The Enigma of Reason. I covered it in my book club as a podcast, but the ideas are so interesting that I wanted to take a second chance to explain them. The basic puzzle is this. If reason is so useful, why do human beings seem to be the only animals that possess it? Surely a lion who had excellent reasoning abilities would catch more gazelles. Yet human beings seem to be alone in the ability to reason about things. And two, if reason is so powerful, why are we so bad at it? Why do we have tons of cognitive biases? Reason thinking is supposed to be good, but we seem to use it fairly little as a species. Unraveling the Enigma The answer to both of these puzzles, which has far-reaching implications for how we think and make decisions, is that we've misunderstood what reason actually is. The classic view of reason is that it is simply better thinking. Reason thinking is better than unreasoned thinking. Being able to reason means being smarter, a kind of universal cognitive enhancement that is good for all types of problems. Sure, we don't always use it, and it can be slower than intuitive judgments, the classic view goes, but reasoning is always good. Sperbay and Mercier argue, in contrast, that reason is actually a very specialized cognitive adaptation. The reason other animals do not possess reason is because they don't have the unique environment human beings exist in, and thus never needed to evolve the adaptation. The reason human beings don't often use reason thinking is that our faculties of reason are actually much more restricted in their use. We use it only when necessary, and otherwise adopt the same strategies animals use to make otherwise intelligent behavior. So what is the point of reason? Well, according to Sperbay and Mercier, the purpose of reason as a faculty is for generating and evaluating reasons. That's reason with a plural. So different from reason, it is reasons. This may sound almost tautological, but these two words, reason and reasons, actually refer to two very distinct things. Reason, without the uh, plural, is a faculty. It's an ability we possess. So near synonyms might include things like logic, critical thinking, or analysis. Reasons, in contrast, are explanations, usually given in the form of sentences. So because it's raining is a reason for bringing an umbrella outside. Reasons, such as this one, do not refer to the general capacity of human beings to decide to take umbrellas when it rains, but rather the explanations that justify such behavior to other people and to yourself. What Sperbay and Mercy argue is that human faculty of reason largely isn't to create intelligent behavior. Instead, it serves to justify and explain that behavior. In short, we have reason to create and evaluate reasons. Those reasons aren't mostly for ourselves, but to make our behavior comprehensible and justifiable to other human beings. Animals don't need this faculty because without language, there is no one to hear the reasons that they might have. Human beings don't use reason all the time because our decisions about what to do are mostly generated by other intuitive processes and reasoning is added afterward. Mental modules and how you think about things. A popular view of the brain is the modular theory of mind. 
This view says that rather than being a unified whole, the brain is better thought of as broken down into distinct modules. Each module takes inputs from other parts of the brain and gives outputs to other parts of the brain, and each module specializes to its own functions. One metaphor for this might be to imagine comparing a big factory that makes gadgets from scratch on a big conveyor belt. Now compare this to a bunch of separate companies that each make parts of the gadgets and they get put together only at the end. Mental modules are more like this last picture, with each separate company being somewhat separate from the others rather than being a big unified conveyor belt of all thinking. Fitting in with this view, reason, according to Sperbe and Mercier, is a separate mental module. And this module has two functions. First, it takes situations and generates reasons for them. So if you were standing with your umbrella and someone asked you, well, why are you carrying that? Your reason module might generate a few candidate answers before arriving on it's raining outside as, as being a particularly good one. Second, it evaluates the reasons of other people. In this way, you can also take the reasons given by other people and decide whether or not they're good. If I asked you why you're carrying an umbrella and you said, because it's Monday today, that would not seem to be a very good reason for carrying it. Important in this theory is that the decision to carry an umbrella itself doesn't need to be decided by the reason module. This might be a different module of the brain that through past condition experience generates the motor commands to grab your umbrella before leaving the house. The reason for why to carry the umbrella, in terms of an actual sentence or thought, may only occur later upon being asked by someone, or if you were anticipating being asked by someone. Opaque processes and reasoning. One coincidence I find very persuasive in terms of arguing for this view of reason comes from machine learning. A common critique of machine learning is that it is not introspectable, meaning if an algorithm decides to approve a loan, change a price, or order a drone strike, human beings often don't know why it made that choice. Even the designers of the algorithm itself often don't know what were the causes of its decisions, even if it tends to make them accurately on average. So one proposed solution to this problem has actually been to make two systems. One makes the decision, and the other trains itself on the patterns of the first system to generate explanations of the former. This way, a complete machine learning system could justify its own behavior. So the coincidence here is that this is exactly what Spurvey and Mercy argue is how human brains actually work. We also have a bunch of opaque algorithms that may be trained in ways maybe not too dissimilar from machine learning algorithms. And the fact that machine learning algorithms often describe themselves in terms of neural networks uses their superficial similarity to the brain as a metaphor for their operation. So we too also need to justify our behavior to outsiders so that it appears in keeping with how our society works. If we appear to do things without any apparent reason, or worse, a reason that's not valid for that social situation, then we may be seen as crazy or, or even evil. Thus, evolution fashioned us, too, with this second module that takes our intuitively arrived at decisions and generates something that we can communicate with language to outsiders so that they can try to evaluate why we do what we do. Implications of Spurman Mercier's theory. There are too many implications of this idea to fit easily into a blog post. Best to read the book itself. However, I want to showcase a few of the most important implications of the theory if it is true. One, 
reasoning isn't a big part of intelligence or even potentially consciousness. One common view of psychology is described as the elephant and the rider. We are the riders, loudly proclaiming where we want our behavior to go, yet it is really the elephant, the unconscious mind, that is the driving force. This view has often been used to disparage the idea that we have much control over our lives or decisions. Although the essence of consciousness is still debated, I think this new theory upends some of this view of the mind. In this view, there is no rider. Reason itself is just another module in the mind, providing specialized support for specific tasks. In other words, it's intuitive and opaque processes all the way down. So a better metaphor might be of starlings. These birds fly in amazing patterns, but the behavior emerges out of each bird doing a smaller part. There's no bird who dictates the pattern of flight to others, like a rider might tell an elephant where to go. There is also no cohesive whole to ignore this order, like a willful elephant might ignore its rider. Instead, there's a bunch of smaller parts, modules, all doing their own purposes, contributing to a more intelligent behavior at a larger level. 2. It's possible to have smart decisions, but not be able to have reasons for them. So in a classic view of reason, having no reason for an action makes it almost certainly a bad one. Unless it happens to be randomly correct, there's no reason to trust it if there's no reason behind it. Sperbet and Mercier, in contrast, completely flip this view. If reason exists to generate reasons, then there are potentially tons of smart decisions that we struggle to generate good reasons for. Therefore, ignoring one's reason and acting without it is not necessarily maladaptive, so unless you get confronted about your behavior by other people. I don't think this implies we should make every decision on intuition alone, but it does put a big hole in the project of rationality as a self-improvement goal. If rationality is really mostly about rationalization, then the idea of working hard to make your behavior more in line with your reasons may be a fundamentally flawed one. Number three, we are smarter when we argue than when we think alone. Sperbet and Mercier call their theory the argumentative theory of reason. This is because they claim that the function of reason is to provide socially justifiable reasons for beliefs and behaviors. This also explains why we have a strong my side bias, looking to justify our beliefs rather than challenge them. And this is what reason is actually for. However, the power of reason and why reason produces so much wonderful things as technology, science, and human progress is that collectively our individual weaknesses cancel out. You may not persuade your opponent in a debate, but the audience is listening. In the end, good reasons win out over bad ones in the broader sphere of discussion. Number four, feedback loops may explain the role of classical reason. This explanation may seem like it dismisses too easily the focal example of classical reasoning. Smart people thinking carefully to arrive at a hard-won but brilliant insight. However, when we see that reason can both generate and evaluate reasons for things, this forms a potential feedback loop. You can take the reasons you generate yourself and then evaluate them. If you expect pushback, you may reject those initial reasons and dig deeper to try again. This may even push you to change your intuitive beliefs if you're unable to come up with a suitable justification. So this actually happens all the time when you have to explain something to a skeptical audience. You may in your head rehearse several different explanations before settling on the one that you think is the most justifiable reason. 
This back and forth combined with the ability for a reason module to override intuitively made decisions, provided they can't be sufficiently justified, may explain in a dynamic sense how Spervais and Mercier's theory of reason flowers into the classical reason that we've come to expect from it, but only under specific circumstances. Number five, you will reason better if reasons are harder to provide. So better, this theory also explains why this kind of deep thinking is so rare. Normally, we aren't dealing with such a skeptical audience. We're satisfied with sticking with the first reason that pops up, not searching and evaluating and possibly even changing our beliefs when those first intuitions are shown to be unjustifiable. This may also explain why scientific communities reason so well. The audience is extremely skeptical and sets narrow constraints as to what kinds of reasons count. This makes such narrow wiggle room that it's often easier to override an intuition than to provide an acceptable reason for a bad intuition. This may also give a potential improvement tip for performance in reason-based domains. The higher standards you imagine your audience will have, the better your thinking will be. It will force you to go over and over your thoughts with a fine-tooth comb rather than simply state your intuitions and leave it at that. A corollary for this, however, might be that if the constraints are too narrow for reason, it might lead to rejecting good answers that don't fit the reasons they contain. Dogmatism may be an inevitable side effect of reason as the structures that force reasoning into very specific channels may ultimately divert it from the truth. Concluding thoughts. In the end, our minds are not separated into a war between a ruling but often frail and feeble reason and a willful unconscious. Instead, it is split between many, many different unconscious processes, each with their own domains and specialized functions, with reason standing alongside them. In some senses, this is a demotion of reason, from being a godlike faculty that separates us from the animals to being just one of many tools in our mental toolkits. But in another sense, this is a restoration of reason, since instead of appearing like a sloppy, feeble, and poorly functioning faculty, it appears as if reason does exactly what it was designed to do, and it does so very well. Although there are many implications of this idea, it is how it changes how we conceive of ourselves that matters most to me. If we are not the rider on the elephant, but the murmuration of starlings, then ourselves are both more powerful and also more mysterious than they first appear. Thanks for listening to this episode. More episodes like this can be found by searching for Scott H. Young Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Overcast, and most other podcasting apps available on your smartphone. If you've enjoyed this episode, please consider rating my show. It helps other people find out about it. More of my work can be found at my website, scotthyoung.com. Thank you.